Well, hey guys, welcome back to Legendary Habitat Podcast. This is your host, Colin Koskinen, owner of Legendary Habitat Whitetail Land Management Consulting. Um, yeah, looking forward to uh, jump back into a new episode. Uh, it's been a little bit, but I'm jumping back on with Al Tomechko of Vitalize Seed. And uh, we're going to be talking about uh, you know seed blends, uh, some soil health, pH, um, you know, diving into a lot of different things. Um, some on more of a basic level, um, and then some as well as we're going to dive a little bit deeper into uh, some of these more specific topics, such as correcting your pH, um, solubility in the soil, um, you know, low uh, low calcium levels, and all these different things. How to fix these in your soil to really start to get that nutrient cycling system working in your soil. So, hopefully, you guys like this. We are going to jump right in. I have a uh, another return guest on here. Uh, he's been on here, I believe it was episode uh, number two. And uh, so this is Al Tomechko, owner of Vitalize Seed. Al, are you there? I'm here, buddy. I'm here. Thanks for having me back. Oh, of course. Well, thanks for coming back. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I love doing these. And, you know, you and I get to text from uh, from time to time and share thoughts and ideas. But uh, coming on a podcast is always a little, the pressure's on, you know. So thanks for yeah. having me. No, no, I appreciate it for sure. No, I, I like doing them too. And, I wish I had more time to, you know, get into more of these, but it's just like, I try to fit in as many as I can with my schedule right now, and, you know, uh, yeah, I, I love just, you know, talking soil and all these different things and getting all these different perspectives from a lot of different people from, you know, like you have, you know, I think you've you've done a great job, um, you know, doing researching and, and, and finding all these different resources from different, you know, either it be books or people you've worked with or all that stuff, and I think that's cool. I think that's one of the things I... I admire uh, about you know the way you speak and the way you uh, you know present different things and, and the soil health and, and food plots and everything like that. So, um, well, so, thank yeah. you, thank you very much. That means a lot. I appreciate that. I'm happy it comes across that way because I've definitely been fortunate to learn from a lot of really bright people and continue to learn from a lot of really bright people in the food plot industry or in the agricultural industry. Uh, or in even academia, so I'm happy it comes across that way when I present, and always working to you know better present information and be more articulate and and uh, and more clear. But uh, the fact that you said that means a lot, so thank you very much. Yeah, no, of course, it's definitely always always a challenge because things are always changing and and moving fast, and everything's kind of fast paced. So it's it's kind of get thrown in and and trying to keep up with you know, whatever trends or latest research and all that stuff, it, you know, it takes a lot of work. So, you know, I can, I can definitely, uh, understand that. So. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Yeah. So I, uh, just found you on stage for social, oh, excuse me, social media. And, uh, I know we've been texting a little bit and, uh, so it looks like you just got done with all your spring planning. So why don't you give a little bit of, uh, background on how that went and, uh, what you did, some changes this year, um, I know you had a couple seed blend changes and um, some other biologic uh, inoculants. Um, so yeah, if you want to go over that real quick, and then we'll kind of jump into some other uh, topics. Dive in. For sure, for sure. So I mean, as always, you know, I pull my soil samples every year. Things are looking really good, um, you know, on the farm. And uh, some of the things that we did change this year um, was this is only my second planting season with. Uh, my no-till trill so i was fortunate enough to buy a no-till trill um really looking to try to reduce herbicide use over the next uh, couple of years i've kind of had like a uh where i've i've been able to reduce it but then 
you know, weeds kind of take over or I'm like, yeah, there's just, I need to, to use herb, uh, herbicide again in order to terminate the, the existing crop or um, whatever. And with a no-till drill, it really opens up a lot of opportunities. I'm not saying you can't do it with broadcast. I've definitely done it. Sure. Um, but like last year, just for a quick example, um, you know, we call our fall blend our carbon load, and there's rye, or excuse me, grains, um, rye, wheat, triticale, oats, et cetera, um, and then a whole bunch of brassicas and clovers and such. Well, our nitro boost, which our spring blend, was beautiful. I mean, it looked great. I just I couldn't get myself to terminate with an herbicide. And I was able to drill right through it with the no-till drill, um, and it was messy. I'm not going to pretend like this was a manicured-looking field, uh, but you just set that seed in there so perfectly that as those kind of warm season annuals die off, you know, in um, the heat of August and going into September and just the weight of the tractor and the drill, killing some of them um, with a physical termination, you know, method there, you end up getting this like mix mosh of, of great plants and decaying plants. And then all of course your fall mix coming up without any herbicide use. Yeah. Um, so I'm really looking forward to doing a lot more of that. Um, we did have a few new fields this year that have taken over their oh, primarily fast few pasture. So so those were, were completely burned down um, and kind of doing a master reset on a lot of fields. So, um, of course, you know, handling that with, uh, with spraying. Uh, and then we got the drill really calculated in this year, which was exciting. So um, I don't have a real top-notch drill. I have a Tar River. Um, it's kind of known as like a lesser expensive drill. Um, and I've had it for uh, just about a year now that I've actually had it, but only had one full planting season with it. Okay. And Colin, the, the biggest thing with these drills is um, taking the time to calibrate them is mm-hmm. really, really critical. Um, yep. So that's number one. And then what we're really finding too is not just the leveling. A lot of people talk about the leveling the drill. Um but my buddy did a, a video for me because he's an engineer. He's really, really bright when it comes to this type of thing. And, um, you know, we, we took the time to not only level the drill, but make sure that it's balanced in the sense that, like, the front coulters don't have indes- independent uh, suspension like they would on, like, say, a Great Plains. Okay. Yep. So that means you're always fighting to make sure that your double disc openers, you know, that second row of cutters, for those who aren't overly familiar, you have your, your front coulters, your double disc openers, and then your packing wheel or wheels, depending yeah. on the drill model. And because you don't have independent free suspension on the front, you're always going to battle this kind of teeter-totter as you work to get your double disc openers, you know, adequate depth, yeah. right? And what we found is we got our front disc, um, you know, front coulters set. We had the double disc pretty pretty happy with it and the darn um drive wheel or the the closing wheels that was the back uh, back end of the drill was kind of skipping i have like a little field next to the barn that we kind of do our testing on mm-hmm. and it would every once in a while with any type of change in uh terrain it would skip hmm. so we made a slight modification to increase down pressure on the drive wheel uh essentially lengthening one of the arms um that connects to the deck of the drill and it was such a simple fix uh and we're going <laughs> to make some additional modifications but uh it was a pretty simple fix and it made all the difference in the world and mm. i mean that drill ran fantastic for us um all 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 weekend long really we started drilling friday night i think we f- finished at like 9 or nine thirty saturday night and then uh, sunday it poured rain so it's perfect timing wow, awesome. um 
so yeah so that went really well um as far as the mix goes you know we, we have heavy legumes in the in the springtime summertime mix it's yep. you, know, you get your spring barley um we had uh, american joint vetch in there this year we had lab lab in there this year um being two different types of beans we use uh, forage soybeans eagle forage soybeans um and then we also have our <clears throat> uh cowpeas and uh, a forage pea as well uh, as I mentioned, the lab lab, and then of course your sorghum and your buckwheat and your crimson clover, um, forage rape. I'm trying to think if I'm missing anything else. You know, and really what we're trying to achieve with that is a lot of warm season annual plants that are going to put on rapid growth quickly, yep. um, and then have a mixture of both uh, vertical and horizontal structure across the. Like I tell people, think of an acre as like a solar panel. Yep. So I want to make sure that we're capturing every bit of light across that field that we possibly can in the most optimal way um so to go into your the last point you had mentioned you know we we did partner with canio biologics um they're a company out of washington i got to talk with their ceo i've been using some of their stuff for um, anybody who's listening to me knows that i love to grow a huge tomato garden every year and i've been using some of their stuff for like root dips and stuff and i was really impressed and I had listened to their, I think he's their president or CEO um, on a podcast or two, and he's a really brilliant, I think his education's a microbiologist, but I, I hope I didn't misspeak there. Okay. Um, but he's, I mean, really super brilliant, right, about all the microbiology, and um, that's really the basis of their products is, you know, trying to give you inoculants or solubilized forms of these powders that can be sprayed. So if you're, you're doing a root dip, for example, you might have the powder already solubilized in water and then you're dipping the tomato plants in there and then you're transplanting it and because it's solubilized in the water it just kind of finds its way under the tomato plant roots and then you transplant it into your soil so now that plant is essentially inoculated with that good rhizobacteria and, and um, mycorrhizal fungi and all the other strains of bacteria that they include in there that are beneficial right which help yep. from phosphorus solubility to potassium solubility to nitrate uh, uh, nitrogen uptake uh, so on and so forth. So we, I mean, they have a whole pile of products, but we partnered with them on two that we felt would be the e one, the easiest to understand because some of their, their products, I'm like, I don't really know if I understand what this does, but uh, right. two, the, the easiest to understand and also the most frequently probably asked for. And the one's called Spectrum Plus uh, Myco, which mycorrhizal fungi. Yep. Um, and it has just a like ton of different good rhizobacteria strains and, and stuff. And then also um, it has the mycorrhizal fungi strain um and then the other one is micro 5000 which has a bunch of soluble um micronutrients you know and then your zinc your manganese copper etc and then it also has a bunch of bacteria that are meant to kind of partner with those micronutrients and make sure that their uptake within the plant within the soil solubility profile for that plant is adequate um okay so what's cool about all of that mumbo jumbo is, and what I've really been interested in, I've been working with some farmers about this and question a lot, is the, the idea of doing seed treatments, Yep. right? So we all are, are familiar with like foliar feeding or, you know, your typical granular feeding. And that presents a lot of really good opportunities. I love foliar feeding too. Mm-hmm. Um, but as we know, some nutrients are more available um, to plants and some move in the soil and some don't and some move in some soils but don't move in other soils and, right. and you know, there's all this this variability so to be able to take these powders that are I always use the word soluble but they're dissolvable right yeah. so like yep. they're they're inherently dissolvable and 
with just a little bit of moisture. It doesn't take a lot. So you can literally pour them onto the seed in your, in your drill or in your broadcast spreader, mix it around. I mean, you want it to get good coverage, but it doesn't take a lot. So now you've put these seeds into the soil, whether you've tilled or whether you've, you've no-till drilled them or whether you've broadcast into a thatch, you know, whatever the, you know, pick your poison, right? Yeah, yep. And now the rains come or the dew comes the next day and within a week, you know, all of a sudden the seed's starting to germinate and you have this fresh um, plant-available nutrients and plant-ready bacteria that's good for the plant sitting right there on the root. Right. right there on the seed, right. ready to be absorbed and ready to make sure that, you know, they're going to work solubilizing the phosphorus right there. For example, you know, a lot of people say phosphorus is good for root growth. Well, yeah. now you have this bacteria that maybe it was in the soil, right? But maybe you have a degraded soil that needs a little bit of help. Um, so we're playing around with that this year. You know, we're going to do yeah. quite a bit of testing and uh, quite, a bit, uh, quite a bit of observational analysis, um, specifically on some of the new areas of the farm that we're planting that have never been in systems before and see if we notice increased, you know, soil aggregation, if we notice increased uh, rhizal sheath or roots sticking, or excuse me, soil sticking to the roots of the plants, yeah, that yeah. type of stuff. Um, it's going to be quite observational, but then also we have quite a bit of tissue testing data now to see if there's any differences there on some of the fields, you know, that we've done it in the past. You know, we can kind of overlay and go, whoa, we saw an X number you know, we saw an increase of X, Y, and Z in our tissue testing, and nothing's changed other than us using these these little tiny packets of powder, and we were able to solubilize or assimilate, I should say, more nutrients in the plant tissue. Okay. So, so you know, real just quick, a lot of little testing that we can take advantage of. Yeah, yeah. So real quick, I've got I've got a question for you for the inoculants because I've I've been hearing this more, and um, I'm sure you've seen you know like green cover seeds. They started doing this, you know, adding inoculants and stuff, and um, so I'm also going to be doing some different trials, you know, like we talked about, always trying to do, you know, learn more stuff. And um, so one of the things that um, they had talked about with inoculants or that I've just heard in general is that you can really start backing off your inputs as far as fertilizer inputs as you, as you actually start making this biology <clears throat> work for you. And I think that's the same type of system with, you know, obviously having diverse cover crops. Um, so what is... I guess what would you say is what are you looking for uh, as the biggest advantage to these inoculants from from these specific ones as far as are you looking for imp reducing your inputs or overall just plant health um you know what are some things that you've heard or things that you're going to be looking for in these it's a great question um so for me i'm a little bit spoiled because i've been doing this for you know a while and i haven't used a synthetic fertilizer on my farm in seven years, something like that. Okay. Um, I've used a little bit of lime, but I've literally only used biology to grow, you know, everything you see on our, on our web. Well, now we've added more pictures, so I can't say that anymore, but sure. it used to be all pictures from my farm. You yeah. Know, I mean, yep. it was, and it was all just stuff that I had grown without an ounce of synthetic inputs, no nitrogen fertilizer, not even foliar feeding. Okay. Um, but with that being said, um, I still think that we can, even in really high-functioning systems, Colin, I think we can still look for um, optimization. You know, I think that we can still look to um, enhance the likelihood of seedling survival 
be it the case of a drought, right? So mm -hmm. to me, using, like, I think I said in a video today, I don't know if, I think I tagged you in it, but yeah. know, one of the things that I mentioned, I'm like, I look at it as like an insurance policy. Now, in a, let's say you have a really slight sandy soil, I would be way more um, focused on the importance of that mycorrhizal fungi inoculant on the seed. You know, whether it's what we're talking about or, or a different one out there, there's other ones out there. Yep. Just because I want to get that, I want to do everything I possibly can to get that mycorrhizal fungi and fungal network rocking in that low CEC soil to help create aggregation and stability and biological structure of that soil right so yep. it's kind of one of those things where like the worst off soils are probably going to see the best response you know okay. yep. um, and maybe less like least likely to, to actually get that uh that you know treatment right but yep. typically you know the healthiest soils maybe not won't see as good of a response um but that's that's kind of my thing so um, yeah no i one like thing that. i will say from a, to, from a, a point of um quantifying it is I want to continue to look and see if I notice on my um, tissue tests additional uh, phosphorus. I also want to know if I notice on soil testing, if I no start to see an uptick in available phosphorus showing up on soil tests. And there's two quick reasons I'll tell you I look at phosphorus. Is phosphorus is known to be highly immobile in the soil, right? Yep. So, it's, you know, I have anywhere from, say, 10 well i think my lowest is probably nine i'm probably gonna misquote but let's just say nine or ten cec up to say 16 or 17 okay, okay? and those range from the newest fields have lower om maybe two or three eh, about 2.8 to 3.2 percent somewhere in there up to i don't know four and a half or five percent organic matter okay yep. but it, regardless of that phosphorus can still show up on a soil test in really low ppm numbers and if you were growing row crop corn they'd say hey whoa buddy you need 150 ppm of phosphorus to show up on that test mm -hmm. you know i might look at mine and go well i got 25 but i'm pulling tissue samples and it doesn't correlate right it's it's like the tissue samples i'm pulling you know 20 to 30 pounds of phosphorus just in above ground biomass and yeah. you know growing sorghum that's fantastic the root structure is fantastic so what that tells me is a couple things. One, the phosphorus that I am getting is in the plant is through biological activity, right, in, in the soil profile. Two, maybe the lab's extract method is just not strong enough to pull all the phosphorus that's actually in my soil because it's bound up with, say, calcium or iron or something like, like yep. that, right? But I'm very curious to see is if I start using these inoculants and really working hard to stimulate some of that phosphorus solubility because you have additional fungal networks if i won't be able to draw a little bit stronger correlation to um you know when they use that extract at the lab oh all of a sudden your ppm of phosphorus is going up without the addition of actually any phosphorus fertilizer right right you're right? pulling you're pulling it out of your soil or your, your you know your biology is working for you and providing exactly. what you're planting your biology yep. is hopefully breaking the bonds that a weak acid at a lab when they're doing the extraction method is not right when that yep. phosphorus is bound with iron for, for example um so that's kind of some of the things i'm looking for and of course i think i don't know if i said but of course you know i always tell guys take a shovel look at root structure because yeah. you know do they look healthy you yep. know and then if anybody i know it's expensive but gosh i, I take tissue testing it's like the most fun i love it
it's so cool to see what your plants are doing. Um, and that's something I'm excited to, to continue to do as well. Yeah, yeah, no, we'll definitely, I definitely want to talk about that. We'll jump back into that. Um, again, I want to hit on a couple other things, and then I definitely want to hit back on the tissue sampling and some, some different points that you've, uh, or data, you know, that you've come up with. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I really like that. You know, there's definitely, you know, having those um, inoculants to help with stress, with drought on the plant, um, and then obviously pulling those nutrients, you know, something that you can actually see I think is really cool where you can see phosphorus and especially if you can see that on your tissue sample then you can know if you're moving in the right direction and and and, um, and then you can really start saying you know if, if you are putting on inputs then you know maybe you can back those off you know 15 percent the first or you know 50 percent you know the first year and you can slowly start peeling those back whatever it um absolutely it in all honesty i i would love to get um some trials done with it and i haven't yet but I think it's a great product to be used even for like monoculture clover fields. Okay. I know you probably fell out of your chair like, Al, it's talking about a monoculture, but <laughs> like, think about this. Cause like I talk to guys all the time, like, well, I have a small field or what, whatever it might be. Yeah. But like, you think clover needs all people. Always, I need to always put P and K down. I always have to put P and K on my clover. I always yep. have to put P and K on my clover. Well, typically people till, then they plant their clover, then they pack it down and then they don't mess with it for three years. Right. Four years, you know, yep. several. So, like, why not on that initial investment try to give that soil a little bit of an inoculation of mycorrhizal fungi? Because you're not going to get the benefit to stimulate, stimulate, stimulate. Excuse me, mycorrhizal fungi because you don't have long term because you simply don't have the diverse root structure, mm-hmm. right? And the diverse yep. root exudates and the diverse microbial situation occurring and communications occurring through highly diverse mixes yeah but what if you could for two years right and i don't know the time and the duration but it just seems like a really good insurance policy sure. to sort of say wait you know let's throw this down here to solubilize some of that initial nutrients in the profile so maybe in the next year or two my clover can grab it up instead of me having to go put down you know zero twenty four twenty four or whatever it might be yeah yep no i totally agree for sure and then i think that goes back to rotating crops too which I know, you know, obviously, if you are on a monoculture, you know, you're doing clover, and then a lot of guys are going to brassicas. But there's a lot of guys who, you know, they've got these five- or six-year-old clover plots, and they're really starting to struggle. They probably should have been, you know, planted in some type of cover crop or, you know, put some turnips or brassicas or something like that. And, you know, keeping that rotation going every couple of years, um, I think that, that definitely helps. Um, but, yeah, putting, you know, if you can, if you can put a uh, inoculant in there, I think that's, that's definitely huge. Yeah, I'd like to try that and see see how much that would really improve clover. That's a that's a good point. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. So kind of moving on, while we're talking about seeds, um, so I guess let's talk a little bit about picking the right seed mix or strategy, um, you know, for based on whatever your soil type is. Um, obviously, you know, you sell seed to a lot of different people throughout the Midwest, and um so i think that's that's one of the things you've got a lot of feedback i know from your customers um from your seed blends and um you know i've tried you know your seed blend i've tried a lot of different ones and um you know i've, I've started to pick up on little things you know some were just observations and then i've got to do you know a lot of times i want to do it for one or two years before i actually say okay this is what i'm seeing you know there are a lot of things that 
it could be weather related it could be drought it could be you know weeds or you know all these different things year to year so um you know that's where I've, I've picked up on little things and i try to record them as best i can and then keep you know maybe i'll do the same thing another year and then if it happens again then you know i started to find these trends in, in different things um that's why i wanted to pick your brain and see what you found um because i know a lot of guys what i have seen as far as the high diversity mixes which i know you're very familiar with um is i know it's hard on on um poor soils or sandy soils when you're doing these high diversity mixes one thing i've seen is is put how to put down um, amendments or fertilizers for these more high diversity mixes because they have such a diversity of crops in them and obviously typically you know what i've found is a lot of times they do need these inputs that first year you know when you're kind of trying to go into this cover crop or high diversity mix um, just because obviously you're, you're starting with really poor soil um, so that's one of the things that i have seen and um, you know, I guess comparing that kind of to like a straight thing of rye or something like that where you can say, okay, this is what you need. You know, it's just rye as far as an input. So that's one of the things that I wanted to, to bounce off you as an as, as a, um, observation. I wanted to see what your what your input was there, if you've had struggles with that or what your thoughts are. Oh, it's a lot to unpack, but it's a great question. So <laughs> I think that what we have seen as far as situations that won't work for our mixes in particular um the most common one is a guy calls me um or emails me and says hey i got a a tenth of an acre um surrounded by pine thicket you know i'd like to put your nitro boost in here it's poor soil and you know it doesn't get much sunlight you know really just a less than ideal situation sure um and it's not that i don't want somebody's business trust me i mean we're a new company we we appreciate everybody's business, but sure. I don't want somebody to waste their money either. Yep. And in those situations, I'm like, listen, you'd be better off going with our fall mix and probably staggering your seeding because it has the grains and the brassicas and stuff like that. Um, and staggering your seeding maybe over a month, right? Like seed it every two weeks for like a month to just to try to capture one rainfalls um, and also get something growing could before the deer wipe it out at least in most parts of the midwest yeah um and, and sometimes you know it's tough because people i can feel you know i can sense their disappointment because they they want to you know have it look like it looks on our website it's <laughs> we just have to be realistic with the growers goals you know and yep. um that's probably the most common thing that i run into um, as an issue, you know, and okay. I'll tell them sometimes, you know, well, what's your budget? What are you looking to do here? Is it just, are you re- interested in soil like health or are you, well, I just really want this kill plot. You know, I'm like, wait, well, hey, listen, if that's the case, then, you know, maybe just throw down, you know, some rye and oats and, and clover or, so, you know, something like that. Or, yeah. um, that, cause again, I mean, I want people to have our mix, but if you have a 10th of an acre or 16th of an acre with minimal sunlight, um, low pH, surrounded by pine trees, you're you, that you're very limited on, on what you can accomplish, um, specifically with our summer mix. So I, I just tell people that's that's really not, um, you know, that's that's not an ideal scenario. So that's yeah. what I would say there. Okay. As far as amendments relative to soil type, um, 
you know, talking about soil is like talking about politics or religion. Like people kind of fall on one end of the spectrum somewhere. And, and I think most of us kind of fall in the middle, mm-hmm. um, somewhere on that middle, but you know, somewhere <laughs> in the middle. But I really try to blend regenerative agriculture methodologies and, and thought processes and even science now with kind of your standard agronomy. Right. And, okay. uh, or at least some variation thereof or your conventional agronomy, maybe I should say. Yeah. Um, so to me, like if I look at, it might be easier if I just use an example. Um, I probably, I looked at like 15 or 20 soil samples last night and it's like all over the country, you know, a couple guys from Iowa, a couple guys from Michigan, a couple guys I think were from, forget where the other one was now but it doesn't matter you know several different soil types and the point is is when i look at these soil types i look at it from okay do we want to have good solid whether you're planting my mix or not right i'm just just looking at a soil test at this point okay i want to make a decision as to okay what's the grower's goals okay we want to attract wildlife we want to we want you know we have an acre or two acres or five acres and we want to attract wildlife we want to reduce our inputs, we want to maximize soil biology, we want to work on nutrient cycling, you know, all these things. I'm like, okay, bingo, it's a good fit for us. Let's look at your, you know, I'm looking at your soil test here, and I'm like, okay, your calcium base saturation is at 38%, your magnesium is at 5%, and your potassium is at 1%. Your pH is low, Mm -hmm. you know, so I'm looking at all these things, I'm saying, we need to focus on the standard chemical structure of the soil profile. Yeah. So what I mean by that is, all right, let's, okay, we, we got to get this pH up. Let's say it's at five and a half. All right. Well, now I'm going to look at calcium, magnesium, base saturations. And some soil tests don't um, offer that. I'm going to tell everybody if they don't try to find a lab that's going to give them to you or ask for them because they're right. really critical whether you read them or you come to somebody else to help it's just going to help right. um, them to understand kind of what's going on but yep. i'm going to look at this and say okay i need both you know calcium and magnesium i'm going to look at the cec so soil makeup so it's a let's say it's a light soil i'm then going to say all right i'm going to add dual dolomite limestone and i'm going to add a bunch of it right now mm-hmm. i'm probably not going to add more than a ton an acre um that first year because it's an inherently sandy soil right yep. and i just kind of want to see what happens i'm not going to go break the bank plus most guys in our situation can't go and put i, I see some guys put like five or ten tons i'm like that's crazy like i'm going to put like a ton down per acre yeah. and see where it adjusts the ph um so real quick real quick just to stop you right there because i want to bring this up as a point so when you've got low CE soil, <clears throat> just so our listeners know, why is it really important to not put down a lot of pH as far as your first year? Is that mainly just due to having that low CEC where you're typically not going to hold that, that pH change for very long and hold those inputs until you really start building up that organic matter? Yeah, exactly. CEC? Exactly. But I also am not a huge fan of putting down really on any soil overly excessive amounts of of lime um i know there's a lot of calculations out there that say you have to put down this much or that much and and maybe someday i'll change my mind on this but um you know my own farm i've put down far less than what i've needed to Mm -hmm. and worked with soil biology and i've seen my ph's hold consistently with 
super specific soil testing methods. Yeah. And I've seen my pHs hold above, you know, 6.2. Okay. Um, wow. So I always tell people, like, let's not break the bank and spend all of our money only on lime. If we get a, a soil pH from 5.5 to 5.8 to 6 in the first year, that's fantastic. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that this idea that you have to go from 5.5 to 7 in the first year, um, first off, I, 7 is not ideal. Seven's neutral. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, having a little bit of hydrogen or acidity on the soil colloid makes a lot of sense. You think about the acids that come out of roots are, or the exudates, excuse me, that come out of roots are acidic, right? They have a lower yep. pH, which helps to solubilize nutrients. So, this idea of having no acidity, which is your hydrogen molecule on your soil colloid um, in your soils, is a little bit of a misnomer, I guess. Like, I think, you know, we've all kind of thought, like, oh, seven's perfect. Um, but like six and a half, six point eight. Yeah. You're six point four. Like if I'm at six point four, um, I'm probably not spending money online that year. Oh, you know what sure. I mean? Yeah, hundred percent agree. Yeah. So that's my that's my take. And, and with that point though, Colin, I would agree with that on every type of amendment you're gonna put on a sandy soil. Yeah. So yep. I, I'm not gonna tell you, you know, potassium. Potassium is a leachable nutrient. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not gonna tell you, hey go hammer down potassium i'm going to tell you okay you do have low organic matter you have a low cec soil my focus is ph in year one and i want to get that magnesium up into optimum range which on a lower cec soil that might be 18 to 20 percent now the reason that is is magnesium is going to tighten the chemical structure of the soil Okay, so if you think of every piece of soil as like a sheet of paper, and if you try to put two sheets of paper on top of each other, little technical difficulty there so um, (laughs) what i was mentioning is just so for a little bit clearer explanation at least i hope so i hope i'm not losing people but the reason we want to understand our base saturations from this is not a yield driver necessarily right and we're we're food plotters so we're looking at long-term structure so the reason we want to know our base saturations on our soil test is so that we can pick the right line source so in this example low ph low magnesium low calcium we're going to go with dolomite lime. We're going to drive pH up. Yep. Dolomitic limestone or dolomite lime is magnesium carbonate. You're also going to drive your magnesium up. It also does have a little bit of calcium. We're going to work to get our magnesium up to optimum, okay, which in that soil type, maybe it's 18%. I don't know for, you know specifically, because, um, but let's just say it's, it's 18 to 22% is, is fine for that soil type, lower CEC, yep. okay? Yep. What I'd like to people to understand is if you took, you know, soil colloid is, is thrown around a lot in this research, but it's basically, if you think of the soil, your sand, silt, et cetera, as like a sheet of paper. And then in between that next sheet of paper, next slit of soil, 
are these nutrients, right? These, these cations or calcium, magnesium, potassium, hydrogen, sodium, right? Okay. And yep. there's, there's some others. So they're between these two sheets of paper, okay? And think of these cations as balls. Calcium is like the size of a softball, yep. okay? So now those two sheets of paper, when you have a whole pile of calcium in there, or a whole bunch of calcium in your soil, you have a whole bunch of softballs between those two pieces of paper. There's a lot of room there. Sure. Now, magnesium is like a marble. Yep. Now, where this gets tricky is on light soils or low CEC soils like we're talking about, because they're so light and they're so inherently porous, we want those two sheets of paper to be a little bit closer together than maybe we would on, say, a heavy clay soil. On a heavy clay soil, we want more basketballs or softballs, excuse me, um, example, calcium, between yep. those layers of paper. And okay. the reason is because we want to add porosity to that soil. So right now, we're not talking about nutrient uptake. We're talking strictly chemical structure of the soil profile to help with water infiltration, which is going to help with microbial communication, microbial movement through your soil. It's going to help with um, moisture retention in your soil profile. And as you, all of this happens, your microbial life is better. You have better nutrient solubility, et cetera, yeah. right? Better yep. fungal networks. You know what I mean? Sure. So as you work to do that, then you can start getting kind of, um, and that's a multiple year process. You're not going to balance your base saturations in a year. Right. So yep. you, 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 but you're making that decision on limestone mm. now because you have to add lime regardless. You might as well knock out two birds with one stone and use a limestone that's going to help to balance the soil structure. Yep, for now, sure. Now, if I'm looking and I'm planting like our nitro boost in this soil and I'm like, man, it's got like darn near no um, potassium. I often am still not going to put a ton of worry in phosphorus unless I can get in a soluble form like a spray form um or to foliar feed to do a uh, a seed soak or or a um, uh, soil soak right okay. yep. um i'm not or if i if the person is doing tillage then i'll say hey you can do a little bit of phosphorus yeah but just broadcasting phosphorus on top even in a light soil it's not going to move very much okay so it's it's i'm probably not going to tell them to look at that again with our summer mix I'm going to tell them, don't spend any money on nitrogen. Now, if there's a little bit in a foliar feed, that's okay. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to worry about it. Right. But don't go out there. If you send to a, a soil lab, hey, cover crop mix, they're going to assume more of like fall or cool season cover crops. So they're going to put anywhere from 20, 40, 80 units of N per acre. Just that's going to be an autofill. Okay. And if you're putting that down on the summer nitro, I'm telling you, you're wasting it. Specifically in sandy soils, you just ain't going to hang on to it. Right. You know what I mean? Right. So where I tell guys to spend their money on our summer is if you're going to spend it, use the soluble K. And if you're going to use a K that you want to put down in a granular form, that's okay. Do it right at planting, pray for rain, um, or foliar feed those plants. So I'm in agreement with you 100% of the time that there are soils out there, whether they're too heavy or whether they're super light, 
that there are different methodologies and ways in which you have to attack it and prescribe for that field to best suit that need. I don't necessarily think it's about the mix as much as it's about how are we going to apply the nutrients to, are we going to spoon feed those plants? You know, and here's here's a quick example I'll give you on top of, you're probably like, oh, stop talking, but I think this is No, no, this is good. So... A good friend of mine, Caleb, he and I just got off the phone uh, actually yesterday, I think it was, because somebody had sent me a soil sample. I'm like, this doesn't add up, you know, <laughs> which, by the way, for anybody listening, if you're looking at your soil sample and things just aren't adding up, you know, base saturations don't add, whatever, call the lab. You yeah. can ask them to rerun the sample, and most labs will do it at no charge. You can ask them, hey, can I talk to you who ran this? Something seems off here right so that that's people make mistakes you know we're, we're none of us are perfect sure so i always yep. tell people because i've seen some wacky things on a not a lot but on occasion i'm like that's a real head scratcher you know <laughs> right. so but what we were so he was uh i sent it to him i go what, am i way off here or am i and he's like he read it reviewed it and he's like no you're you're right buddy he's like something's something's wrong either they they fat fingered something either the ph is wrong or the basic something's off yeah so anyhow, but Caleb is an agronomist and um, farm consultant in South Georgia. Hmm. And anybody who's friends with him, I mean, he has an amazing stands of, of corn that they grow in literally beach sand. I mean, I'm talking wow. one and two CEC soil. And when I started becoming friends with Caleb and he was really had taught me a lot and give me really good resources to, to read and such. I'm like, how are you doing it, right? Because a lot of guys in the Midwest would just flat out say, oh, you couldn't grow corn on that type of soil. It's oh, too yeah. low, right? Yep. Corn's super um, nutrient-demanding crop. Yep. Yep. And here these guys are paying their mortgage with it. So <laughs> I was very interested. How are they doing it? Well, there's a lot of things that they do, right? Perfect seeding depth is the planter, um, you know, and, and things like that. They control with precision agriculture. Sure. But the most important thing for this conversation is – um, and that's for moisture retention, right? Getting that that depth for you know in South Georgia summers, yeah, it's pretty, yeah. pretty important. Oh, but absolutely. They're trickle feeding or spoon feeding these plants nutrients as they've specified. They know, hey, V V four, we need to apply X number of units of blah blah blah. You know, yep. NPK NPK. We're going to put phosphorus in furrow at two by in the two by two with a little bit of nitrate or, or whatever it might be. Right. Right to carry that down into the root zones or or when that plant grows, it's right in that root zone. I share that with you because I think it speaks volumes because they're growing some really darn good corn in South Georgia. Hmm. And all right, last thing I said, I got to give you one more. (laughs) Russell (laughs) Hendricks, I believe, I hope I'm not misspeaking, but I believe Russell Hendricks is the right now holds the record. He's a regenerative farmer. I believe he holds the record right now for bushel per acre corn. It was like over 600 bushel per acre. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. And he did it in North Carolina, I think, South Carolina. Wow, that is impressive. And he did it through maximizing biology. I mean, he has a lot of inputs. You know, he was foliar feeding them and stuff like that. And it was a lot of natural inputs. But my point is, is that we can do a lot on suboptimal soils um, regardless of the crop, you know, even if you were just growing rye grain, yeah, I would still be telling you to follow these same principles. The only difference is, is rye grain you'd be planting in the fall, and I'd be like, "Well, 
maybe use a little bit of foliar in or, you know, in right at the time of planting because you have a 1% organic matter soil and you have no nitrate in the zero to six inch range. Right. Does yep. that all make sense? Yeah, no, no, 100%. No, and that's that's definitely what, that's what I was expecting um, to hear. And that's some of what I've, when I've talked to some other guys um, and that's kind of what they've said too is, is um, you know, you're going to have to really focus on, you know, spoon feeding those those inputs until you can get that biology started you know and i think that's really important you know and it like you said it's it's really regardless i think of of what you're planting i think really looking at just what your soil needs i think is a is a huge uh takeaway from that um you know and i think and i don't know you know whether it's a monoculture or whether it's a high diversity um you know what I'm assuming that you're going to be able to get more precise um, inputs if you're doing uh, more of a monoculture. You're going to see those out of a monoculture. Now, I don't know if I'm correct with that versus a diversity, a high diversity mix where you might see, you know, let's say that you're just putting down N, for example. Then, you know, if, you're, if your mix has a lot of, you know, grasses in it, which, you know, love your nitrogen, I don't know if you're going to see... A lot more of that in your grains and your grasses versus you know some other uh, plants in your mix and, and that's that was one of the things that I've always been curious of is is with these high diversity mixes are we getting those you know can we see what we're actually putting in if that makes sense it, it does I think though that with the high diversity mixes in general like for i'll just use mine you know because sure. i don't want to talk about anybody else's company but like for me if i was to tell you to put n down it's only going to be in the fall and the reason is is because the majority of the crops that are going to need the n are going to be in the fall right okay. in that mix so you might have a, a handful of the species in there that aren't going to need an overabundance of n um but I don't think it's going to be because I'm not going to tell you go down and put like if you're growing a monoculture, say you're growing a monoculture or purple top turnip, right? They yeah. might say, hey, put down 300 pounds of N. Right. See, now the difference is, is I'm going to say, well, you don't need that. We're going to grow really big turnips, but I want you to put down 15 pounds of N because I'm only wanting you to put enough N down for the grains and the brassicas and the broad leaves in that fall mix. And I want the legumes to do the work for themselves. Okay. Nope. That totally makes sense for sure. Because then you if know, we're... But again, I do think we have to be cognizant of soil type because that might tell you, hey, you got a really light soil. What type of N are you putting down? Are you putting down a treated urea? Because yep. if you, are you just putting down regular urea? Do you have a rain coming? Because if you're just throwing it on top, you know, we, we don't want to be... We want to be cognizant of these things, one, for our own pocket, right? right. I mean, everybody works hard for the money. Yep. But two, like... We don't want it just going down into, I would say, the Ohio River, you know what I mean? Or yep. we don't want it in Lake Michigan, right? Like, yep. so, or we're back in the atmosphere, there goes our dollars, right back. So we have to be kind of saying that. And that's why I continue to go back to, um, you know, the, the idea of foliar feeding these plants. And I understand that's tough. Not everybody has the time, but gosh, I, I just, I've seen it with, you know, my own tomato plants and stuff where I've, I've used like fish hydrolysage or, you know, things like that. Yep. And, the response, Colin, is, is amazing. Yeah, and you know? I've seen the same thing, you know, just foliar feeding. Uh, well, I've, I've, a great example is I foliar fed um, the last year's carbon load, and um, I did I did a couple different trials on it, and um, 
using uh, Brad Harper's product. He's got a nitrogen, um, liquid nitrogen, and um, yeah, did several several different trials at a half rate, a full rate, and then I did granular too. And it was absolutely, it was really cool to see the difference between you know a half rate, a full rate, and then you know granular on, oh, on, yeah. on Nebraska's and just just how well it worked. Um, yeah, and you're, so. you're I don't know for sure. I don't want to say 100, percent but you're you're getting a lot of absorption. Yeah, right. Versus. Yep this kind of guessing game like well should i be killing it in should i, you know, I think, right and, and that's why i think it's really important um you know and I'll, I, every time i do a podcast people like albert you're a broken record but it's like that's why i think it's so important to make sure we get these soil tests so yeah. we really know you know and also what kind of planting method are you using are you using tillage are you using no-till are you doing broadcast and i'm okay with any of them you know, but there's going to be a bit different prescription for every one of them, right? Yeah. Yep. Yep, for sure. So, kind of moving on from that, um, unless there's anything else you wanted to talk about. Um, so, carbon and nitrogen ratios and why it's important for nutrient cycling. I know this is something that you've talked a lot about, and I wanted you to kind of hit on. Um, sure, sure. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess. The best example I could give on this, um, or at least the best that comes to mind, is what you're what we're trying to accomplish with nutrient cycling, whether it's a farmer or whether you're using the vitalized seed one two mix um, or some other version thereof, right? That's yep. highly focused on nutrient cycling, right? That this is what that means is we're focusing from from one mix to the next mix. These are feeding the soil to feed each other, right? And we're, we're trying to balance, we're trying to reduce our need for synthetic inputs into this equation, right? Yep. So our input one is our is our plant mix, and we're trying to feed input two being our fall plant mix without having to need any additional inputs into the equation, right? Just our plant mixes are our only inputs into this equation in this field, or at least as much as possible. So I'd like everyone to just forget about plants and fields and all this and just think of a compost pile. Everybody, I think, listening could probably think of a, of a leaf pile, right? Sure. Everybody's raked leaves in the fall, and they had this big old pile of leaves, and they put it back by a wood line or, or shed or whatever, and they graduated high school, and the leaf pile was still there. You know? And you're like, <laughs> holy cow, that was a long time, right? And it's interesting, right, because you go, how could that be? You know, and and yeah, uh, you know, some people all oh, leaves just don't break down. They say, well, the reason they don't break down, um, at least relative to our perception, right, is because there's not enough nitrogen within that leaf pile. So there's no stimulation of microbiology or biology or bacteria or fungi to break down that those leaves in that pile yep. right now if all of a sudden colin summertime comes and you're out in the backyard and you're cutting the grass and you're bagging it up and you got all these green grass clippings and you pour them on top of that pile it's going to push it down it's going to add a little bit of pressure etc um and you do that all summer long and then the next the next fall you come back and you throw them leaves back on top you're going to sit there and and this pile's getting smaller. Mm-hmm. And underneath that, underneath there, you're going to go, holy cow, there's, there's, there's soil forming. Yeah. 
because you're balancing, right? You're, you're putting the grass clippings in low carbon and nitrogen. That's why if you put grass clippings just in a pile somewhere and let them sit, a lot of times you can start to see them steam on their own. Yep. Well, it's not spontaneous combustion, right? It's it's microbes yep. are, are working in there to break that thing down. They're creating steam. Well, it's the same idea. So now we're trying to do this with soil. It's the same, it's the same thing. We're just trying to do, so let's say in that in that compost example, you start noticing this and you go, you know what, I want to make this more diverse. I'm going to add some sticks to it, but I know those are high carbon. So in order to balance that out, I'm going to start throwing banana peels in there. Lower carbon to nitrogen ratio, softer, right? The bacteria have consumed that pretty quickly and then they'll work on those sticks that I threw in there. Yeah. You see where I'm getting at? So now yep. we're adding diversity to this pile. Yeah. No. So now we send in that, that compost at the end of the day or end of the year and all of a sudden the initial compost we had had X number of nutrients and now this new compost has X times two nutrients because yeah. of the diversity yep. and the different microbial systems that are working to break down the different types of species or materials that we have in there. So I say that because that's the same idea with nutrient cycling, right? So you use a lot of diversity to stimulate a whole heck of a lot of microbiology and you know, one plant might feed microbe A. When microbe A is happy, he has communications that then stimulate microbe B in the soil. That microbe might stimulate C. And those all together might have a synergistic relationship with a fungal strain within the soil profile that's going to have, you know, exudation occurring. It's going to help solubilize additional nutrients, right? So now you have all these plant, this plant material it's building up. You have root masses. You have microbial biomass, which is something that's really interesting to me um, as we work through these systems. Because remember, these microbes are living. They're, they're, they have nutrients, and then they're dying, right. right? Sometimes within our own plants, they're getting consumed through the rise of phage cycle. Anybody who's interested, look up Dr. James White, um, research out of Rutgers University. But other times, Colin, there, there's this biomass of microbes in the soil, right? So those are – and now plants are – growing within there and they're coming across these and, and solubilizing them etc or, or excuse me assimilating them etc so i share that with you because that's the whole idea of balancing these systems so what we've done with ours with our plants is we have a heavy legume focused mix but it's not solely legumes because we want to make sure that we're capturing say nitrogen that leaks deep in the soil profile i want my sunflowers grabbing that yeah right i don't want the soybeans because they're not going to capture that nitrogen that those turnips have worked really hard to assimilate now they're breaking down and some of that nitrogen slipping through i want my spring barley to go nope thank you i'll take that right right it's like recycling yeah like hey don't throw don't throw that television away it still works i'll take it Right. You know what I mean? It's, it's the same idea. Yeah. But in order to have it balanced and to understand that is you have to have mixes that follow each other that work in symphony with each other. Because if not, you end up getting what's called nutrient tie-up. And the best example I can use for that, other than just the leaf pile, is like if somebody planted monoculture corn on corn on corn on corn on corn – and they use no tillage and they're trying to no-till that i promise you unless they have an exorbitant nitrogen bill they're going to go i have to either till this add nitrogen or probably both mm-hmm. and the, pro- the reason is because corn is such a high carbon to nitrogen ratio plant that's one of the main reasons that 
the standard and and I mean, I think anybody who grew up in the Midwest, you know, oh, it was a cornfield last year. It's going to be beans this year. Yep. You know, deer hunting neighborhood's going to change. It's going to be beans this year. Yep. You know, like, that was, like, always growing. So I share all that with you. Hopefully that made sense. I, I mean, I could go on and on about that, but I wanted to kind of be as brief as, as well, brief for me, I guess. But yeah. um, try to explain it to people as to kind of how that works and how you're using one mix to feed the next mix to then feed the next mix which is then going to break it down to feed the next mix right you just it's a cycle nutrient cycling and that's why you do one after the other after the other after the other and just keep bouncing back and forth with these diverse mixes yeah no no i mean i love it for sure i like that analogy a lot with you with the leaf pile it's a lot of people can relate to that for sure so um yeah so um Let's see. So one other thing I wanted to hit on real quick while we're talking about this is uh, one of the things while we were talking about um, seeds and we're talking about inputs and all this other stuff, talking about plants that when we're adding these inputs that I've heard of this thing, this term in the regenerative agriculture, stuff like that, is your plants start to become very reliant on inputs and not so much on your biology, your soil, in being more so self-reliant, I guess, if that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. And I know we're kind of going back, but I wanted to hit on this real quick because it's one of the things that I've always thought of. And I know we were kind of, when I was talking about the monocultures and diversity in, in seed mixes, I think that's one of the big benefits to having a diverse mix. Obviously, there's lots of them, but is we want these plants to be more reliant on the biology of the soil and working with each other in these different microbial uh, activities. So that's one of the things that, that I think I wanted to, wanted you to hit on a little bit is if you've seen that before where plants you know, have become reliant on inputs on the agriculture side of things. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen that before. Yeah, so I mean the... the the best analogy, I, I like to use analogies because yeah. I think it I think it helps for people to digest the information. So the best ag- analogy I've come up with to, to date is like a bodybuilder who's using steroids. Um, he might look really big and strong, right? Um, but when the doctors dig into it, they go, well, your body's not producing testosterone on its own anymore because yeah. you've been injecting testosterone, right? Yep. And our soils are very similar. Now, I think there's a little bit of an exaggeration as to, oh, if you put any amendments down, I think that's been exaggerated a little bit because even Dr. Christine Jones, I remember saying, you know, for some reason, and she was she self-admittedly said in this webinar, I, we, we don't know why this happens, but there was a positive microbial response to so many units of N. I'm just going to throw a number out there, but this is just as an example. Sure. 50 units of N per acre. Yeah. So I think that getting plants inoculated or started like we talked about in the foliar feed to ensure the, the they're in a healthy place especially in the food plot world before they're they're browsed right yep. things like that um i don't think you're going to see the the bare roots the plants not shooting down roots really excuse my french but piss poor root structure yeah. you know I, I don't think you're going to see that unless you're really going heavy with synthetic inputs heavy oxidizing salt based you know four or five hundred pounds per acre you know to grow an acre of turnip right like and, and some guys have done that for years um and you can grow some good looking turnips but you also then question like well, why aren't the deer eating them 
right? Well, because yeah. the deer know better than we do about nutrient density. You know, if somebody could figure out how what they know and put it into an iPhone app, they'd be a billionaire because yep. uh, you'd be able to know exactly what's nutrient dense at your grocery store, right? Yep. So, yep. Um, so I hope that makes sense as far as like what that means. And, and the yeah. idea is, yeah, just like the human body, if you're injecting testosterone after testosterone after testosterone after testosterone, and there's no there's no out plan. Right. This right. is this is not doctor prescribed. This is just pounding it, pounding it. Your body is going to stop producing testosterone. Yep. It's the same thing with soils. If you're if the plants don't have to work to exude brood exudates to communicate with the microbial system, every single thing there at it's a very much a trickle impact or a snowball impact. You're not going to see your microbial system fed because the plants simply are not going to have optimum um, brood exudation occurring the other thing about this and i don't know how to, i don't know how deep you want to go into this but just a brief no, thing no, i'll hit on again good. is the dr james white piece and um there is a lot of research out there uh the gentleman who does the regenerative agriculture podcast uh john kemp uh, or kemp how do you say his name and he owns aea which is an agricultural consulting agency that focuses on um a lot of natural inoculants and, and things of that nature. Yeah. Uh, he recently did a long webinar with I forget who else was on there, um, but it talked about this very topic, Colin. And one okay. of the things that they brought up is how when plants take in nutrients in what they call the amino acid form. So think of a plant basically eating a microbe. Okay, microbe comes into the plant. It's absorbed by the plant. It's consumed just like you and I eating a steak right we're taking in that protein that is a much easier conversion for the plant from a stressful perspective to plant protein right yep than straight nitrate fertilizer and he even broke it down to show like uh is it um like energy conversion units. I'm trying to remember what it was. It doesn't matter. But basically using energy conversion units and saying, you know, nitrate to 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 Y, right? Whatever that, that protein senses takes mm-hmm. X number of units of energy. Yeah. Whereas amino acid in this form that we know they're assimilating or taking in or converting only takes one tenth the amount of energy. Yeah. So that's, what that that's means very is interesting. it's way less stressful for the plant when you're growing plants that are one um healthy right and they're also going to be way healthier when you're growing plants and create microbial systems or right. functioning soils right no no I, that was great for sure and I, that was exactly where where i kind of wanted to go with that is is you know like you mentioned you know you can have this great looking food plot but you know what what's really going on or how healthy really is that plant and um that's one of the things that i've started to dive a little bit into, you know, as far as, you know, reducing my herbicides and stuff like that because of the things I've found that, you know, for example, glyphosate, it ties up some of these things and it doesn't allow the plant to, you know, take up iron or take take up several of these things. And these plants are, they're finding now that they are a lot less nutrient dense. And um, so that's just an observation. That's why one of the things that I wanted to you to hit on real quick um, for the listeners, because that's one of the things that I have observed, and um, and, and through reducing a lot of my inputs, um, even though I'm on our farm as an example, I'm still pretty heavy on tillage and stuff like that. Um, I have noticed that you know my plant health has 
definitely increased a lot and I have you know almost zero synthetic inputs um, so anyhow yeah so you know kind of moving on from that point then I guess is a good correlation to go on to to hit on tissue sampling real quick some some key takeaways that you had from that um, while we're talking about you know actually what those nutrients are in that plant and what you're fine what you have found yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that opportunity because I, I just absolutely love it. And, you know, <laughs> I've I've done a handful of tissue sampling now, and I just continue to want to do more and more every year. Um, you know, last year, I'll just give those examples, I suppose, is I took two tissue samples, um, <clears throat> sent them in for analysis, two fields, different CECs, about a half a mile apart on the farm, um, <clears throat> different organic matters. Um, same planting methods, same planting time, all that was the same. Um, I mean, different pH levels. Gosh, you couldn't get much different, you know, than in, yeah. as far as it goes. And um, one was way up on this top of the ridge. I call it high point. And um, this other one was kind of down at the bottom, right? So different even moisture holding levels just based on the terrain differences, right? And uh, I took these two tissue samples, and I was amazed because it was a nitro boost. So I took it at, like, end of July maybe. Okay. Um, and these fields never had a, an ounce of synthetic fertilizer, right? Mm. Neither one was sprayed foliar either this year. So these were just planted and, you know, good Lord willing, we get rain and they grow, right? And they did. Right. They grew really, really well. And, um, Colin, you probably saw a bunch of my, my pictures and posts. You probably stop posting. But, uh, <laughs> you know, you kinda, I love it. Kind of have to, to, to do stuff and share information and stuff. And, uh, they extracted within a pound or two, right? So really low variability between the two samples. Um, but it was roughly, and I gosh, I hope I don't misquote myself. I, I believe it was a 45 to 49 pounds of nitrogen per acre. Now this is just the above ground biomass. Okay. So no, um, you know, root biomass, no uh, end fixation nodules that were still in the roots, you know, no organic mineralization being accounted for, okay. no thatch that's on the soil that's still slowly breaking down. Sure. Right? None of that is being accounted for. No, not even the nitrate that's in the zero to six or zero to eight inch range of the soil. None of that's, this is just above ground. It was 45 to 49 pounds per acre. Hmm. Now that's wow. all going right back into the soil, right? right. We're no till drilling right through this. We're either doing that, we're either spraying it, or we're, um, uh, mowing it <clears throat> so 45 pounds of n per acre just in above ground biomass wow phosphorus was between 20 and 22 i believe it was either 20 and 22 or 22 and 24 regardless somewhere in that range of phosphorus in the plant and potassium again i've never put a synthetic um, fertilizer on these fields was between 83 and 85 pounds per acre. Hmm. Wow. So you go, where the hell was that at? <laughs> you know, <laughs> where, where was that sitting at? Right. right. But it's sitting in the soil. It's bound up and it needs biology to unlock it. And another good one for people to read um, or listen to is Dr. Rick Mulvaney's research out of the, uh, I'm probably going to get it wrong, it, University of Illinois, I think, or Illinois University. I think it's University of Illinois. Yep, I um, think that's right. And uh, he took... <clears throat> He and a gentleman had done years of research, and uh, they talk about the potassium. So potassium is way more available in our soils. Excuse me, it's way more populated in our soils than what we think. The issue is that it's just not available because we don't have enough diversity of biology to make it available. Mm -hmm. But through these, we can make it available. 
Yeah, 85 pounds. I about fell over. Wow. And both the tests were, like I said, within a pound or two of each other. Wow. So, so question here. So this is your first time doing a tissue uh, sample on uh, this actual field, right? On either of those fields, yeah. Okay. So have you done a back-to-back -back tissue sample from year to year, and have you seen those numbers? Because I know there's a lot of different from the little bit that I know about it. Um, I know there's a lot of variability in tissue sampling as far as when you take it, you know, the plant, uh, you know, obviously what stage of growth the plant's at, um, you know, temperature of the day. You know, I know there's these different factors, so I don't know. That's what I've always been intrigued by, and I know you've been doing this tissue sampling, so I've always wondered... Have you seen this progression taking these year after year? Can you see that? Or is it more so, let's just see this year, you know, where we're at, and then we're going to build off that? Well, I'm going to continue to take I haven't taken it year after year. Um, I, I've done a couple for, <clears throat> excuse me, our fall mix. that have been year after year in different soils. Um, but this year, I'm, I'm looking, of course, it kind of stinks because you have to wait another year <laughs> every time. <laughs> but um, I am looking to do more. <clears throat> Gosh, I have a tickle in my throat. I apologize. No um, I am looking to do more, um, you know, in the in the future. But, um, yeah, I mean, I still have seen where. So <clears throat> in the, I had done some um, of our fall mix kind of earlier in this year. Um coming out of coming into spring you know and i'm like well i know if i waited longer i would probably get higher numbers right as right it seems to grow and pull and if it's in the summer you know is it trying to put on great if it's a sorghum so put on grain or if it's if it's uh you know beans trying to put on grain yep but uh i did one earlier and the numbers were still staggering i mean wow. it was i think like 29 or 30 pounds of potassium um getting extracted from the soil now i do want to be clear on this I am using Ward Labs to do a cover crop tissue analysis. Okay. Um, so that is a little bit different. Like some people will, will say, well, if you just go to and pick a leaf off a broad or a buckwheat leaf and just send in that leaf, there's a ton of variability there, right? Yeah. Because, you know, one could be in a little bit better soil or, or whatever. Yeah. But this is actually where I'm going in. I'm putting down a, a two by two square. Um, or a three by three square and following their protocol, which is basically cut everything at like uh, about an inch from the soil okay. and then put it in a bag and then ship it to them. And then they're, they're taking, you know, a biomass measurement, uh, total carbon measurement, total NPK micros, et cetera. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's cool for sure. And that, that's, I think that's a good takeaway too, because I've thought about doing tissue sampling and, and um, really to see year to year, you know, if it's like a soil test, you know, where you can start to see these different improvements. And, and I think that's what's, what's good to know, you know, if we can actually see it year to year, or if we have a lot of these different changes, it's not worth your time and, and money, um, you know, to be trying to track it year to year, um, as far as if you're in the same plot, you know, same situation stuff like that yeah and that's why if you're trying to pull in a you know like a leaf sample basically you yeah. know um talk to some farmers who are, who are growing corn like they do it all the time yeah you know and they have very specific instructions you know we pull this leaf on this growth stage and we'll do it 
across the field. You know, what I mean? like it's it's very specific because they know right. there's variability. If you're just trying to pull random leaves off a multi-species cover crop and send them in, and say, hey, what's you know what's the protein content, for example? Like I've seen some of that type of stuff. Yeah, I'm like that. That has to be really highly variable. Right. Right. So I'm looking at it more from like a cover crop um, averaging of, of nutrient value, you know, in a, in a three by three square kind of at random. Okay. Um, and I and I do agree with you. I think we can kind of see then what kind of nutrients we're putting back in the soil. But also when you start laying, so what I've done in the past too is I've taken soil samples right out of that same square I cut cut, cut these uh, cover crop samples out of. <clears throat> and then okay. I'm like, okay, well I know the whole field soil sample, but right where I put pick these plants, let's see if there's any correlations um between that you know and and how does that kind of overlay yep um and i plan to do more of that because i've only done that like once or twice now and i just don't have a strong enough um sample size to really give you any feedback if i know the score or not i'm just looking at numbers at this point yeah no for sure no that's that's great i mean always trying to improve and that's one of the things that that i was curious of and um i know you know guys have seen more on tissue sampling and so that's what i've always i've thought you know okay is it like soil sampling can you actually learn year to year you know how much variability and stuff so that definitely you know kind of simplifies it more so um i think for guys if they're if they're thinking about doing it um and really start learning i think it's great to know as a as a base um you know what your plant's taken up or what's in your soil that your plant's taken up um and then you can you know build off of that for sure absolutely absolutely well cool well awesome well i that's all i've got for this podcast i know we went a little bit over but that was that was my fault so <laughs> i uh you know i get excited to start talking about this stuff and one thing leads to another and um but yeah i i really appreciate you coming on here and, and sharing all your knowledge and and uh you know years of experience and stuff so uh yeah no this, this was fun this was cool and uh, i learned some stuff hopefully the listeners had some good takeaways and um yeah i'm excited spring is here we're putting seed in the ground and uh you know we get to get to be uh hopefully reaping the rewards you know in our building our soil and and uh healthy deer and and great hunting over it so (laughs) absolutely Colin. i can't thank you enough buddy i always enjoy talking with you and and uh i always appreciate the support and stuff and you know um, i really appreciate you having me on and giving me an opportunity to to chat with you um one thing i'll tell people is my one takeaway is don't be afraid to keep asking questions continue to ask why um yeah you know i, I had so a couple tests come back on <clears throat> on a farm or two i low uh phosphorus ppm and i had been growing some pretty good fields there uh i wrote to a soil scientist that i i pick his brain at quite often you know and basically his response is don't worry about it I'm like, what do you mean? Don't worry about it. The phosphorus, I'm, I'm, I should be at X and it's it, this and it. And he's like, the plants are doing well. Everything else looks great. Let's not worry about that one phosphorus reading. And I say that because even this gentleman who's a PhD soil scientist is, is probably sitting there going, who knows what type of biological activity is happening in that soil that's making the phosphorus be uptaken by the plant, mm-hmm. but it just isn't showing up on our test. And that's just one example, but don't be afraid to ask questions because that's how we all get better. Ask the questions, take a PFLA test, ask for a CO2 burst, you know, read books or hands-on agronomy, Um, you know, watch some of the regen ag stuff, watch some of the conventional ag stuff, like 
ask the questions and you know share what you've picked up and question things and try new things and that's how we drive you know forward and remember any step towards soil conservation is a step in the right direction yeah hey absolutely well on that note i appreciate you coming on here and uh yeah i think we'll uh wrap things up maybe have you on again uh later in the season for fall planting and uh yeah see how your season goes and so for anybody who wants to reach out to you or is interested in seed uh if you want to give a little shout out to yourself yeah, and contact yeah. vitalizeseed.com vitalize seed on facebook vitalize seed on instagram and pretty much anywhere else so just vitalize seed and uh thanks so much colin again this was a lot of fun i hope the listeners enjoyed it yeah of course no and anybody listening you know if you don't follow al or vitalize seed all kinds of resources that he puts out uh, completely for free and uh so that's just a, a great thing if even if you're not going to buy any product al does a great job of, of educating his his customers or just a general whoever wants to follow along so i i can appreciate that and uh that's what it's that's what it's all about so thanks so much buddy i really appreciate that yeah yeah of course thanks again for coming on and uh i will uh hopefully talk to you soon absolutely man i well thanks guys for listening to this episode i appreciate everybody tuning in and uh supporting the podcast uh it's grown a lot and i'm hoping to get a lot more episodes and some other uh, key speakers on here in the near future hope you guys had some good takeaways and uh, learned a couple things from that podcast i always enjoy sitting down with al and uh you know picking his brain asking different questions on on his background his knowledge that he's gotten over the years so yeah with that happy planting season everyone hope uh hope we get some rain here soon and our soil temperatures are getting up uh you know close to the 60s here throughout michigan and in the midwest i know a lot of guys are have either already planted put seed in the ground or they're gonna be in the next couple of weeks so um yeah i'm gonna be uh doing some different trials on the food plots this year so i'm gonna try to get some videos out on the youtube channel and uh, on some different trials that i'm working on on our farm with high diversity mixes and no-till drilling and um you know trying to really reduce my my herbicides and, and in some spots i'm not using any um so yeah with that happy planting season guys and be sure to always strive to be a better steward of god's creation thanks